0: And I love even more reading it in a room full of people who also already know how the story is going to go and how it's going to end. And even though they know how it's going to end, you can't help but chuckle. Uh, When Haman enters the room and the king says, go and do all that you have mentioned. The Lord uses uh, lots of things to twist the intentions of evil men against themselves. And that, in a sense, is what we're going to see today as we continue our studies in Luke's Gospel. And today we're going to begin looking at Jesus' trial, both before the Jewish authorities and also before Pilate. We're getting into the section of Luke's Gospel... Uh, as we've often been in sections of Luke's Gospel, where it's hard to know where to divide and and how to parse out where should we stop and where should we keep going. We could keep going uh, and preach huge texts, or we could splinter it down into small pieces and look at something that may be a bit too pedantic. But I've chosen today to break it up in in this way. Uh, We're going to look at Jesus mocked, and then Jesus before the Jewish authorities, and Jesus' first appearance before Pilate. And that way, Lord willing, when we come back, there will be a bit of a mirror as Jesus then goes before Herod and then back to Pilate. And so today, we're really going to see Jesus before the Jews and Jesus before the Romans. And then, Lord willing, next week, we're going to see again Jesus before before a Roman Jew and Jesus before the Romans. We'll see this and uh, some of the themes twice, but today we're reading Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63, and we're reading through the beginning of chapter 23, verse 5. That's on page 883 of the Cart, uh, the Pew Bibles, uh, not Cart Bibles here, but Pew Bibles. Page 883, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63, reading through chapter 23, verse 5. Before we read God's word together. Let's go to Him and ask His blessing on our study. Let's pray. O righteous, glorious Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and as we come to it, we pray that You would use it and to expose our need of You, to show us how good You are to us in Jesus Christ, to help us to know more of our Savior. Help us, O Lord, to hear what our souls need to look upon the one whom our souls desire and to be filled by your spirit that we would be obedient to you in faith and repentance, that we would walk with you in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 22, beginning to read in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation." and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. In the mid-90s, a school bus overturned in England. It killed about a dozen children and their driver. A local newspaper wanting to weigh in, give some comment on what had happened, uh, went to a local priest and asked him that Uh, that poignant question, how could he believe in a loving, all-powerful God who allows such a tragedy? Well, the priest first denied that he could know God's particular motives in this case. And then he went on to say that the horror of the crash confirms the fact that we live in a world of real values, positive and negative. If the universe was just electrons, there would be no problem of evil or suffering. Richard Dawkins, in turn, reacted to the priest and also reacted to that bus crash by stating, on the contrary, if the universe were just electrons, just blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. He went on, the universe we observe, he says, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now to give credit where credit is due, uh, Dawkins is at the very least incredibly consistent. There are some atheistic apologists who are still out there trying to argue for objective morality in the universe. Some atheistic apologists who are willing to call a tragedy a tragedy and to call suffering suffering, who agree that the world is simultaneously full of meaning and misery. Dawkins denies all of it. Pitiless indifference, he says. Nothing but purposeless, valueless, vacuous cosmic apathy. And though we uh, disagree with his conclusion, there's a benefit in the way that Dawkins paints the dilemma. Because the dilemma of human suffering often for us is is it real? I mean, does does it even matter? Is evil actually evil? Is suffering actually wrong? And if it is, is there a God who's doing anything about it? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the answer to our dilemma. It presents to us the gospel presents not the God who is pitilessly indifferent with our plight and our struggle, but the God who is intimately acquainted with the suffering that we experience. The gospel presents to us the God who sympathizes. He was innocent, yet he faced injustice. He was righteous, yet he died as a criminal. He is the Son of God, the Lord of creation, and yet he entered our mortality, and he died for the guilt of our sins. He did it to prove that he's with us. And he did it to make it possible for us to be with him. Christ, our Savior, endured injustice to save God's suffering people. And his voluntary endurance is visible in every aspect of the text that we just read together. We see it, first of all, in Jesus' suffering. Jesus' suffering, this is our first point today. You're aware that there are some passages of Scripture that grab hold of you and will not let you go. Well, for about the last 20 years or so, Luke chapter 22, verses 63 and 64 have had me in a vice grip. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Now let's be honest, this is just merely the fringe of the garment of the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. This is not yet the desperate final cry on the cross. This is not the dregs of the cup of wrath that Jesus uh, deigned to drink at Calvary. Yet in some way these few verses, this little picture encapsulates for us the fact that Jesus entered into our distinctly human experience of suffering. Jesus wasn't suffering here through physical sickness or natural forces. Jesus was suffering at the hands of enemies who despised him. It was abuse of the highest order. You now, sometimes when we t- want to talk about violence that uh, is exceptionally shocking, we sometimes compare it to the violence of animals. We call it inhuman. We call it brutish or beastly, but I think that's giving the animals too much credit. No beast has ever devised the means that humans have devised of heaping violence on top of shame, on top of ridicule, on top of torture. The animals kill to fill their stomachs and to defend their territory. Human beings kill for spite and revenge. And in these few verses, Luke is showcasing for us the spite of the men who had Jesus in their charge. It's a restrained picture. Luke doesn't tell us all that he could tell us, all about the, the slaps and the fists and the spitting and the shameful treatment. He doesn't tell us about the crown of thorns in his gospel, but he tells us enough to recognize that Jesus suffered in the way that only a human being can suffer. Now Humanity rebels against God. Sometimes humans even shake an angry fist in his direction, and yet God remains separated and throned above the heavens out of reach of violent hands and human plots, but at the incarnation, the eternal word came within striking distance. He suffered as a man. He also suffered as a prophet that's what they shouted against him that's how they taunted him as if if he really were a prophet he would clearly be able to name the name of the men who struck him even while blindfolded what little did they know of the Savior That he actually is a prophet, that he actually could have named the men who hit him. He could have told them what they had for breakfast that morning. He could have told them uh, those deep, dark secrets that they've never shared with anyone. If only he had opened his mouth, he could have silenced theirs by the wisdom of his knowledge. And he didn't. He remained silent because that's what happens to prophets they are silenced. And they are ridiculed, and they are jeered at, and they are received with blows by the authorities who resided in Jerusalem. Luke 13, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those who were sent to it. That means Jesus knew what was going to happen. And here's the great irony. It all happened according to his prophetic word. He foretold it all before he got there. The denial and the betrayal in the garden, the handing over and the rejection by the chief priest, the mocking and the spitting and the shameful treatment, he prophesied all of it. It's all happening according to his word, and yet he suffered on. Our great prophet received a prophet's welcome in Jerusalem. And it was his patient endurance on our behalf. He went up and he submitted himself because that was God's plan for salvation. God's divine servant entered into our human suffering. The way that Jesus endured that suffering is all the more striking when you consider the fullness of Jesus' identity. It's our second point. Jesus' identity. This really is the focus of the trial, especially in the way that that Luke presents it to us. Unlike Matthew and Mark, there are some details here that are intentionally missing. Unlike Matthew and Mark, there's no mention here of these these false witnesses who are stacked against them. There's no mention here of uh, Jesus' comments about tearing down the temple, rebuilding it in three days. Unlike John, there is no mention of the midnight pretrial meetings. Uh, the way that they they work together to figure out the charges beforehand. There's no mention here of the conflict between Jesus and the high priest Annas. All those things happen, but Luke is streamlining his reporting to focus our attention on the truth that explains the significance of all of it. And so in Luke's gospel, Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin, and the only topic of discussion is, who are you? Who do you say that you are? And in just six short verses, Luke represents the exalted identity of Jesus that he has shown us over and over again throughout his gospel. He shows us first that Jesus is the Christ. The Jewish Constitution had no Fifth Amendment. They had no option to allow people not to become an incriminating witness against themselves. And so this is the question they ask, hoping that Jesus will become a witness against himself. They said, verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. You know that word? You know that in the New Testament, Christos, is the equivalent of the Old Testament, Mashiach. It means that Christ is the word for Messiah, and both those terms mean the same thing. They mean the anointed one of God the one that God has chosen and set apart for a special task. And in the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings are all anointed by God for the job that he's called them to. And then through the Psalms, through ministries of uh, the prophets like Isaiah, the Lord revealed through the Old Testament that his chosen Savior was going to be known as the Anointed One, the Christ. Well, The Jewish ruling council knew the significance of that term and they knew it probably better than we do. Because for the last several hundred centuries, all faithful Jews were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messianic King to show up and to gather Israel to God and to release them from the bonds of the pagan nations who held them in oppression. That's why Zechariah was so overjoyed when he prophesied at the naming of his own son John. He prophesied about Jesus. Most of uh, Zechariah's prophecy at the birth and the, the naming of his son is about somebody else. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, the Davidic king, the Messianic king. Is why aged righteous Simeon rejoiced when he held the infant Jesus in the temple because Luke chapter 2 verse 26 says that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And even though Jesus does not normally apply that term, that name, Christ, to himself, he never shies away from the fact that God had chosen him and set him apart and ordained him for the special task of delivering his people. That was the big idea of his first sermon in Nazareth. He quoted Isaiah, he applied it to himself, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. The verb there is something like christened, or if you really want to get a sense of what Jesus is saying, the Spirit of the Lord God has Christed me. That's essentially what he's telling us. And on it goes throughout Luke's Gospel. You hear it in Peter's confession. You hear it from blind Bartimaeus by the side of the road. You even hear it from the mouths of demons speaking through those they had inhabited. Over and over again you hear it, Christ applied to Jesus, so much so that by the time you get to the trial, the case is closed. Jesus is the Christ of God. And that means that this question from the council really only exposes the hardness of their hearts. I do not ask this question because they're struggling and wrestling with the overwhelming evidence before them. They don't ask Jesus if he's the Christ in order that they might believe for themselves. They ask because they have already decided to disbelieve in spite of the evidence that they've seen. For them, it's merely a political ploy. It's a a way to paint Jesus as a subversive and to get him in trouble with those that can do away with him. Now Jesus, God's Messiah, refuses to give them an inch. If he told them, they wouldn't believe. If he asked them, they wouldn't answer. Just the same way that they refused to answer in the temple when they asked Jesus about where John's ministry had, or where his ministry had come from, and Jesus countered by asking him about John's ministry. And to agree with what God had clearly revealed about Jesus was, uh, was to lose the argument. They refuse to believe what God has revealed, that Jesus is the Christ. But from now on, says Jesus, verse 69, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's another identity marker that's familiar from our studies. That Jesus is the Son of Man. It's the name used most often by Jesus to refer to himself, to place himself within God's economy of salvation. What is it that the Lord is doing in the world? Well, he's sent the Son of Man. You know this term as well. You know it's from Daniel chapter 7 where the prophet has visions in the night of one like the Ancient of Days seated enthroned in judgment. And then he sees an eternal kingdom given over to one like a Son of Man. And many people, as they see this term on Jesus' lips, they misunderstand it as a a reference to humility, that Jesus is merely speaking about his humanity, that he is a son of man, a son of, of Mary, born of a woman, born under the law, like we all, born of women, born under the law. They think that it's a statement only of his humility and his humanity, but it's also Christ's claim to eternal divinity. The son of man is a figure of power, of might, of reign, and of judgment. It is another indication that Jesus did not endure this trial on his behalf. Jesus said the Son of Man would be seated at the right hand of God's power from now on it indicates a certain sense of immediacy that the the dominoes are already falling in the direction of his heavenly glory. Yes, now there is a trial and now there is a cross and now there is the crown of thorns and the tomb of Joseph but from now on the resurrection and not very far off. From now on the ascension to the right hand of the father from now on the reception of the eternal kingdom from now on the all-seeing eye of Christ's judgment on wicked men and their calloused hearts. That's who He is. He is the Son of Man into whose hands the Father will commit the right to bring recompense upon every deed done on earth, whether good or evil. And that means that although these men think that they now sit in judgment upon Jesus, It is they who will have to stand before the judgment seat of the Son of Man and give an account for every word, every deed, every intention. And not only them. All evildoers. All abusers. All unjust officials with their greasy palms and their bribery, every run-of-the-mill unbeliever with a cushy life and a distaste for Jesus because they're not sure what he can offer to them, all of them will stand before the judgment seat of the Son of Man. Just last June, just about a year ago, a German court, Convicted a 93 year old man by the name of Bruno Day, of 5,232 counts of accessory to murder. When Mr. Day was 17 years old, he was a guard at Struthof concentration camp in the final months of World War II. It's true that sometimes, in this life, justice comes late. Sometimes it never shows up at all. But Dawkins is wrong. There is justice in God's universe. There is no indifference. There's justice at last at the court of the Son of Man. And Jesus' identity is proof. It's also proof that he endured this suffering not for himself but on our behalf. Jesus is not a mere man, that he should be accused and convicted the way that mere men are. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of God. You know, people sometimes today misunderstand the significance of that term, Son of Man, but the Jewish officials did not. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming and how exalted he was saying his identity actually is. Because if Jesus is the son of man who sits at the right hand of the power of God, there can be only one explanation for what he's claiming. And so they say, are you the son of God then? Unfortunately, this is also a term that gets misconstrued. This week I was watching a video conversation between a Christian and a Mormon. In the process of talking about their beliefs, the issue of Christ's identity came up, and the Christian pressed the question to the Mormon, do you believe that Jesus is God's eternal Son? And the Mormon in the conversation responded by saying, yes, we believe Heavenly Father has many sons and daughters. They're using the same terms, but they mean very different things by them. Well, when the Jews, when the Sanhedrin asked this question to Jesus, are you the Son of God? They meant it the way that the New Testament means it. That to be the the Son of God, not just a Son of God, but the Son of God is to be co-equal and co-eternal and co-glorious and co-divine with God Almighty. They meant it in the sense that John had when he wrote uh, John chapter 5, verse 18 in his gospel. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But again, if you've been tracking with Luke up until chapter 22, you already know that this is the witness of the Holy Spirit about Jesus of Nazareth. He is the divine, co-eternal, co-equal Son of God. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that the child that would be born of her would be called great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Twice The voice of the Father breaks through the heavens and speaks into human experience of Jesus and declares of Jesus, this is my Son. He is uniquely pleased with Jesus. We are uniquely commanded to listen and obey His voice. He holds a unique and unparalleled position as the eternal Son of the eternal Father, And the Jewish officials knew the significance of that claim, too. That's why they seized on it in their trial. Christ, earlier, Christ was a political term. It was a term that was advantageous for them because that was a term that perhaps they could use uh, to get Jesus out of favor with the Romans and headed toward a cross. The Son of God, that's a theological term. One that Pilate won't care about, but the people who are so enamored of Jesus, that's one that they'll care about. Maybe one that the Jewish officials can use to turn the tide of public opinion against Jesus. In fact, in the hands of the Sanhedrin, this title, Son of God, uh, this could be Jesus' downfall. This seems a bit too exalted for anyone to claim. Yet despite all that's on the line, Jesus will not deny himself. He knows that when he speaks the truth, the Jews are not going to listen to him. He knows that when he speaks the truth, it's only going to seal their case against him. Nevertheless, he affirms his unique divine identity. He says, you say that I am. Which is a Jewish sort of way of saying yes. (laughs) It is exactly as you say, you have said correctly. That's what Jesus means there. his identity. And the next moments before the council must have been a flurry of wrath and procedure and lamentation. The high priest was bound by law to tear his holy robes in the presence of whatever he considered to be blasphemy against God's holy name. And all the scribes and the officials, everyone who was there, all the elders cried out that such a man deserved to die, such a sinner. And their shouts turned again into slaps, and there were more fists, and there was more spitting, and there was more humiliating disgrace. And what did Jesus do? He endured. He didn't lash out. Do You remember in the garden, it's in John's account, Jesus in the garden and the Roman soldiers Arrayed in their regalia and all of their weapons stand before, them, before him. And Jesus says, whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And in the words, I am he, they all fall over backwards. The Sanhedrin wants to know who Jesus is. And if he had just said, I am he, if he had just claimed perhaps, they all would have been on their backs the way the Roman soldiers would have been on their backs. But he doesn't. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't rage against the sentence passed against him. He endures. He submits. He bears the condemnation that sinners and sufferers deserve. We look at it and we say, it's all so much injustice. It's all so much tragedy. All the more so when you understand Jesus Suffering, and all the more so when you understand Jesus' identity, but all the more so when you understand Jesus' innocence. It's our final point today, Jesus' innocence. And as soon as they were able, the council led Jesus away to Pilate, and sometimes we forget how hasty the whole process was. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus was already crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. And by this time, in this narrative, Jesus still has to be passed off to, uh, to Pilate and then passed off to Herod and then back to Pilate. There have to be uh, preparations made. There have to be scourgings. All sorts of things have to happen before 9 a.m. But if this is going to happen at all, it's got to happen pretty early. Preferably before the city wakes up and realizes what is happening with this prophet that they all lauded as he came in. And so the Jewish leaders show up on Pilate's doorstep before he's even finished his coffee and they rush in with this blast of charges against Jesus. The first one is so generic that he's been misleading the people. It's so generic, it's not even worth engaging with. So Pilate doesn't deal with it and neither will we. The second charge, although Pilate uh, didn't realize it, that he probably didn't know it, the second charge was patently, demonstrably false. You remember that Uh, The Jews, the leaders, had already asked Jesus in the temple what he thought about giving tribute to Caesar. Much to their surprise, he was in favor. (laughs) Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. He he didn't tell people to, to start some revolution against taxes. Patently false. But it's the third charge that had teeth in it. Because if Pilate can be convinced that Jesus was actually claiming to be king, then Pilate would have no choice. He would have to have Jesus brutally slaughtered. He'd have to have him made a public reminder that Rome tolerates no rivals, so he's making himself a king, they said. The problem for the Sanhedrin is that Pilate is utterly unconvinced. Again, Luke doesn't include everything in this conversation that we might want to know about Jesus' interaction with Pilate. In fact, Luke leads out the vast majority of the conversation with Pilate. He leaves out almost everything except Pilate's shock at the idea that this meek, bloodied man standing before him could be a political subversive. Pilate's response here, to Jesus in verse 3 it is repeated in exactly the same language in all four gospels all the same words in all the same order and what's important about that is that in all the gospels the first word to show up is you it's shock it's, it's emphasis you you're the, the king of the Jews really It almost seemed laughable to him. The accusations against the Savior are so empty on their surface that even though Jesus admits the charges, Pilate still declares him innocent. Verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Let's make sure we, we know what Pilate is not doing with that statement, right? Pilate is not making a general moral declaration about Jesus. Jesus is absolutely, positively innocent. He's innocent of all guilt against God or man. He's innocent in thought, word, and deed. He is completely clean and perfect without sin. But that's outside of Pilate's jurisdiction. Don't oversell this. This isn't an absolute statement of Jesus' innocence. But don't undersell it. This is a public, legal declaration. This should have been the end of the matter because Pilate proclaimed Jesus not guilty in the presence of everyone who accused him. Pilate stood with all the power, all the authority of Rome behind him and declared that their case against Jesus is unfounded. Jesus is innocent. Actually, it's the first of three times, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, the first of three times that Pilate attempts to have Jesus released on the basis of his innocence. And every time Pilate tries, the Jews shout him down with a demand for Jesus' blood. Now, where this all comes home for us is in the recognition from one more witness that Jesus endured a death that he did not deserve. He didn't die for any crime that he'd committed. He stepped in as God's vicarious sufferer to redeem God's suffering people. Peter Kreeft is a Roman Catholic theologian, and he put it this way. He said, The answer to suffering cannot be just an abstract idea Because suffering isn't an abstract issue. It's a personal issue. It requires a personal response. The answer to suffering is not a bunch of words, it's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument, it's a person, it's the person. The answer to suffering must be someone, not just something, because the issue involves someone. The issue of suffering is always God, where are you? There are many kinds of human suffering. There's physical suffering as our, our bodies age, our bodies deteriorate. There's physical suffering as cancers and viruses take over and hijack our biology. There's psychological suffering, loneliness, rejection, and frustration, humiliation. There's there's suffering at the hands of those who hate us, and there's suffering as we walk alongside those we love. There's suffering from the hands of those who overlook and oppress and take advantage of the vulnerable. There are many kinds of human suffering, and Jesus endured them all. There are many kinds of human suffering. And they all have the same source. Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says that all creation has been subjected to futility. Futility means things don't work the way they're supposed to work. They're broken. Our bodies are broken. Our relationships are broken. Our societies will all implode given enough time. Our judicial systems, our parenting, our technology, our recreation, our work, our desires, all of it. All of it consigned to futility. All of it infected by the sin that our first parents brought into existence. And the ripples of that sin and that brokenness are repeated in ever-widening circles of human suffering. There are many kinds of human suffering and they all have one source. But Romans chapter 8 verse 20 goes on to tell us that it was God who subjected creation to futility. He subjected it in hope, it tells us, that even creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There are many kinds of human suffering and they all have the same source and the faithful endurance of Jesus to the cross shows us that there is a God who takes our suffering seriously enough to kill the thing at its roots. Not just to deal with with the outworkings, with the ripples, but to go back to the source, to the sin that Adam brought into this world that shows up in all of our lives, in all of our systems, in all of our relationships. So if you ever wrestle with your suffering body or your suffering heart or your suffering soul under the weight of your sin. If you ever ask the question, God, where are you? There is hope. Because the gospel answers that God is with us. He's the one who stood in our place. He's the one who entered our humanity. He's the one who carried the burden of our sin and the futility of our suffering so that by faith we may be set free. Christ endured injustice to save God's suffering people. That's the answer to our question. God, where are you? How could this happen? Have you forgotten me? Are you oblivious? Do you you not know what's going on? Do you not know what my sin has caused in my life? Yes, it's of my own doing, but it's more than I can bear. And God, won't you do something about this? And his answer is always, I've already done something about this. I've sent Jesus Christ, my Son, my Savior, my Messiah, into the world to bear your sin and your shame, your humiliation, the injustice of your suffering, to bear it in his body on the cross, to bury it in the tomb, and to rise again on the third day to give you freedom through him. It's always God's answer to our suffering. It's to point to Jesus and to say repent and believe and find freedom. Let's pray together. Oh gracious Lord our God, we thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you that he's able to sympathize with us And he was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And he suffered as we suffer. Oh Lord, keep us from being prideful in our suffering. Give us the humility of faith in Jesus Christ and life by his name. Thank you for your suffering saints who have been walking with Christ Jesus in faith and repentance for decades. Oh Lord, keep us. O Lord, cause us to walk with you. Remind us of that day when every tear will be gone and every sickness eradicated and all suffering will cease. Help us to look to you and to your promises in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.